All right, so Bible preaching has changed a lot over the years. And while the message of the gospel always stays the same, the techniques of communication will often change based on the generation. And the buzzword in pastoral ministry for at least 20, maybe 25 years has been communication. How do you effectively communicate the word of God to different audiences of all ages, of all levels of spiritual journey, those who are unsaved, those who are new believers, those who have been walking with Jesus for decades. How do you effectively communicate? And through the years, there's been an emphasis on expository preaching, on topical preaching, also on evangelistic preaching, conversational preaching, incarnational preaching, and a whole host of other forms of communication. And each of the different methods has pros and cons based upon the actual audience that it is being shared with. Now, I bring that up because this evening I am going back to a lost form of biblical communication, and I am going to be sharing one of the original forms of expository preaching. In fact, if there were a pastor that I remember who was doing this all the way through his ministry, probably one of the last of those pastors was Homer Lindsay, who was down at First Baptist Jacksonville. It was his regular way of preaching and teaching the Word of God. And the reason this is a lost form of expository preaching is it is how you teach the text while you read the text. And the reason we're doing that tonight is because we have a pretty significantly long portion of Scripture that we're going to be going through, and there's going to be a lot of moments along the way we need to pause and we need to explain what's taking place within the text. So all of that being said, I invite you to go with me in your Bibles this evening to the book of 2 Timothy chapter number 1. 2 Timothy chapter number 1. My main point is actually going to be found over in chapter 2, verse 1, but we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to work our way up to what this text is actually going to be. So I'm going to be speaking this evening on the subject of be strong in grace. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, hold your place in the text. We're going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into reading the section and kind of setting some things up. So Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask tonight that your spirit guide us into all truth. And Lord, we're praying this evening that as this is a different form of communicating scripture, God, may it be one that we see how it unpacks the truths of your word in a sequential fashion as we walk our way through the text. But as always, we need your spirit to guide us into truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's set some things up with a couple of initial thoughts. Second Timothy is the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote just before he died. This is his swan song, so to speak. At the time of his writing, he was in prison and he was facing execution at the hands of Nero. His life was coming to an end. All the way over in chapter four, the exact same book, he tells us that he has fought a good fight and he has finished the course, and he's kept the faith. But before he goes home to be with the Lord, he has some final thoughts, some final truths, some final instruction that he wants to share with Timothy, who is his son in the faith. 
Now, if you'll remember the connection between the two, Timothy was a close friend and a faithful ministry partner to the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul would be in prison and he needed to get a message to a particular church, he would send Timothy. If there were issues of heresy or false teaching in a particular region, he would often send Timothy. Timothy was a guy that the Paul could count on. He was faithful. He was reliable. He was willing to serve, but listen, he was young. He had been a part of Paul's life, but he had not lived Paul's life. He didn't have the experience to teach him. He didn't have the stripes to remind him of God's constant provision. Much of his knowledge was secondhand knowledge by walking with Paul through the journeys of ministry. He was eager to learn, but he was also prone to discouragement. So as Paul writes this letter to his young ministry partner, you can see his love and admiration for Timothy all the way through. You can hear it in the tone of his words that he was proud of Timothy and he wanted to encourage Timothy. But more than just encourage Timothy, he also wanted to impart a final truth. That final truth would be foundational for Timothy to be able to run the race that God had set before him. He wanted Timothy to understand the wonders of grace. More than just what's needed for salvation, he wanted him to understand that grace is indispensable to what it means to walk as a believer. All of that is setting up where we start chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, here's your first word, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. After introducing himself as the writer and Timothy as the recipient, he shares a thought from God. Grace, mercy, and peace from, from God. He did not say, may God's grace, mercy, and peace be with you. That would be encouragement from Paul. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God. In other words, I've been with God, I've been praying, there's three words God has laid on my heart for you. Grace, mercy, peace. Look at what it says in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. It is one thing for somebody to say, I'm praying for you. We're encouraged when people say, I'm praying for you. It is another thing to have a spiritual hero of yours say, I am praying for you night and day. Verse 4, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. Timothy was upset. We don't know the exact circumstances that led to this, but Paul is saying, I recall your tears. He remembers that Timothy has been emotional. He has prayed for Timothy. He longs to see Timothy. Isn't it good to know that somebody longs to see you? In fact, I, I, I personally feel like that's one of the reasons why dogs are so wonderful as pets. You come home every day, and it's like you return from war. They 
have longed to see you as you walk in the door. It's good to know that somebody really wants to see you. I have a number of spiritual heroes in my life, and I feel honored to spend time with any of them. But most of the time, I am the pursuer. Not all of the time, but most of the time. And that is, I go to where they are, I give them a call along the way, I text, I'll email, I, I try to follow up with them. And I understand that. I, I, these are people many times who are leading ministries that are much larger than what I'm leading. They're, they're leading international ministries, serving tens of thousands of people around the world. I recognize they would not have the time to go back and to follow up with everyone. But there's some times along the way when out of the middle of nowhere, one of those mentors will contact me and say, Paul, I was in prayer this morning, and God brought you to mind, and I have prayed for you. And man, I am excited about what God is doing in your life. Let's catch up sometime. All I can say is in less than 50 words, I could have been down in the dump spiritually, and in less than 50 words, it's like it breathes life into me. Something about that spiritual mentor saying, I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for you. And as Paul says here, I am longing to see you. I desire to see you. So Paul is the one who is reaching out to Timothy. Remember, this is Timothy's mentor. This is his friend. This is his father in the faith. This is the greatest missionary statesman who has ever lived apart from Jesus himself. And that guy is saying, Timothy, I am praying for you night and day, longing to see you. Let's read verse 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dealt or dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. Now we know Paul is trying to lift Timothy's spirit. He's prayed for Timothy. He longed to see Timothy. Now he wants to encourage Timothy. And to encourage Timothy, he reminds him of his spiritual heritage. He reminds him of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, who were both women of faith. There's an old saying. It used to be a compliment. I don't know if people even know this statement anymore. But the statement was, you come from good stock. Have you heard that statement? It's kind of meant to say, you come from good people, a good family. There's good heritage there. You, you come from a good place. Well, Paul is saying something very similar. Timothy, you come from a good place, strong spiritual heritage. Your grandmother was a woman of faith. Your mom was a mom of faith. And I know that same gift is also in you. See how he's trying to encourage his son in the faith. Look at what it says in verses 6 and 7. Here's where there's a turn that happens in the narrative. For this reason, what he just said, I, I, I'm encouraging you, make sure that you remember your grandmother, your mom. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or some translations a spirit of fear but of power and love and discipline. We don't know the circumstances that led to him writing that phrase. We have the effect without the cause. But Paul is wanting Timothy to rekindle afresh 
that same faith that has been a generational faith. By the way, it is not necessary to tell someone, rekindle your faith unless your faith has been rocked in some way. For example, we don't see signs on the highway prohibiting people from walking purple platypuses down the highway. It's not exactly an issue. There is no sign because there is no need. In the same way, you don't tell somebody, rekindle your faith unless your faith is hurting, unless your faith is struggling, unless your faith is on life support at this point. Paul is performing what we might consider to be spiritual CPR right now. He's saying, I know that your faith has taken a hit. I recognize that you have been in tears, but I also want you to remember where you came from. Your grandmother was a woman of faith. Your mom was a woman of faith. That same gift is also in you. I want to encourage you, rekindle that faith that is inside of you. He goes on to say, God has not given you the spirit of timidity or the spirit of fear. Again, not necessary to tell someone God has not given you a spirit of fear unless the person is fearful about something that's happening in their life. Now put this back together. You have a young man whose faith has been shaken. He's emotional. His courage has been stripped away. He is stumbling spiritually in some ways. He's not as grounded as he once was. Circumstances have been taking a toll. Let me stop there. Can you identify with any part of what Timothy's been walking through? Some of you, maybe it's the first time in the last week or two that there's been circumstances, events in your life, and it's been rattling your faith. Others, it's been months, it's been years that those same types of things have been happening. And it feels like just about the time you get your footing and you get a sure place to stand, the next part of circumstances come through and knock your feet back out again. You're tired, you get weary in the process. Like many believers, you also know that there's just things that happen in life. That's, that's life. In fact, we've spent four weeks on Sunday morning talking about trials. It's part of the world that we live in. It's not necessarily something that we avoid or something that we have to fear. It's a part of life, not always the most enjoyable part, but we're learning to count it all joy. But here, here's the reason I bring that up. Even though we know it's a part of life, when those circumstances hit hard and hit often, it begins to take a toll on your faith. It shakes you in an unusual way. I've mentioned this before a couple of weeks ago, talking about why it is that it is our faith that is being tested. If you look at it in Scripture, there's a reason the enemy goes after your faith. It is by faith that a person is made right with God when they place faith in what Jesus has done for them. It is by faith that we walk out the Christian life. It is by faith that we please God. It is by faith that we apprehend the promises of God in our life. If the enemy can rock your faith, he's going to unsettle your life. So when your faith is hurting, you need to go back and say, God, rekindle the faith that I know is there. Let's read verse 8. Therefore... 
do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. If Timothy was not afraid before he received this letter, he would probably be afraid after receiving this letter. Over the years, I have encouraged a lot of people, discover your spiritual gift, find a place of service, engage in what God is doing around the world. I have never baited the hook with come and suffer with me with the gospel. That, and by the way, he had the stories to match the invitation. I mean, Paul's stories, he, he, he reads like Rambo with the Bible. I mean, he has been beaten and he's been whipped and he's been imprisoned and he's been rejected and he's been shipwrecked and he's been stoned. And right now he's in prison and he's about to face execution and he says, Timothy, join me in suffering for the gospel. That might be why he also had to tell Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. <laughs> that brother was in knots. I'm joking. Don't email me. <laughs> Crazy thoughts. But just put those pieces together. Timothy was already crying. He's already emotional. He's already afraid. He's already had his faith take a hit. He's discouraged. And instead of Paul saying the easy thing, it's going to get better soon, he said, join me in suffering. Here's the implication. What you're going through is hard, but you're not suffering yet. There's further to join me in suffering. There's a reason why Timothy was maybe a little bit afraid at this point. Let's read verse number nine. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, here it is again, in grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. This is a major transition that's now happening in the letter. Paul moves from the encouraging mentor to the guy who is with Timothy in the trenches. Notice the wording that he is using. Who has saved us, called us, not according to our works. The wording is not, I'll be praying for you as you go through that. The wording here is we're in this together. God has called us. We are serving him together. I know the calling. I know the suffering. I know the pressure. I know how much you have worked. But listen, we were not called according to our works. God is the one who did the work. He saved us. He called us. We are not here because of our works, and we won't stay here because of our works. None of us, by the way, were called according to our works. God did not look down from heaven and say, man, if I could just save that person, I could really get something done in the kingdom if that person came to faith in Christ. He didn't look out and say, if I could just get that gifting, if I could get that passion, if I could get that discipline. Instead, 
our calling was not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Here's that word, grace. I've given this definition before. Grace is God's unmerited favor where he does in us and through us and for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We could not save ourselves, but God did for us and in us what we could not do. That's grace. He, we cannot live the Christian life in our own strength, but God does in us and for us and through us what we cannot do ourselves. We don't deserve his help in that level. It is unmerited on that side. We don't respond well to all people. There are some people, it doesn't matter how long you walked with Jesus, there's some people going to get on your last nerve. (laughs) And when that person's coming, you can feel the tension rising. And all I can say is every time you're like, I can do it, I can do it, and you fail, that's one of those moments again where God's saying, not according to your works, but according to grace. God can do in and through and for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So let's put all the pieces together. Timothy's faith has been shaken. He's fearful. Paul says, as I've prayed, there's been three words God brought to mind for you. Grace, mercy, peace. Timothy, I want to be with you. I long to see you. I've been praying for you night and day. And since I cannot come to you, I need you to remember where you came from. You came from good stock. Your grandmother is a woman of faith. Your mom is a woman of faith. I want you to stir up that same gift that is also in you. And remember, Timothy, neither of us have brought anything to the table. We are here according to God's purpose and according to God's grace. Timothy, if you're going to run the race effectively, if you're going to finish the race that is set before you, if you are going to do what God placed you here to do, it has to be that you lean into grace so that he does in you and through you and for you what you're not going to be able to do. So let's personalize it. Have you gotten weary in your journey with Jesus? Has your faith been shaken? Are there areas in your life where courage has been replaced with fear? Are you afraid of what's coming next? Are you afraid of what that next phone call is going to be? Are you afraid of what that next encounter is going to be? Are you afraid of something that is coming? Are you struggling to respond to certain people in the right way? If that's the case, Paul has one word for you. Grace. Grace. God wants to do in you and through you and for you what you cannot do for yourself. Grace is what affords us the good times, and grace is what sustains us in the bad times. In the following verses, we see both good and bad circumstances all put together. For example, in verse 12, Paul speaks of suffering and also confidence in God's ability. Verse 13, Paul speaks of perseverance in difficulty. Verse 14, Paul speaks of being entrusted with heaven's treasure. That sounds great. Verse 15, he speaks of his friends deserting him. Verse 16, he says, but there's one friend who stood next to me. 
Do you see how it's going? He reminds Timothy, there's ups and there's downs. There's good and there's bad. There is honor and there is dishonor. But every part of it is sovereignly sifted through the hands of God. God uses it all. Every bit of that now leads into chapter 2, verse 1. Look at what he has to say. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The strength you need is found in the grace he has. The strength you need is found in the grace he has. Run to Jesus. It's like Paul is saying, Timothy, ups and downs are coming. There's going to be days you want to throw in the towel. There's going to be days that you want to quit. But please listen to the advice of a man who has run the race before you and is about to cross the finish line. If you're going to make it in this race, be strong in grace. Strong in grace. So here's three concluding thoughts for reflection as we bring it together. First, God's grace is made perfect in our weakness. If you feel weak and worn out, you are a perfect candidate for God's grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. After the apostle Paul had prayed three times that God would remove the thorn in the flesh, God's response to him was, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Problems, weakness, difficulties, distress, it's fertile soil for grace to take root. Second thought, God gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When pride characterizes our life, grace will elude our reach. If grace is God's unmerited favor, where he does in us and through us and for us, here's the last part, what we cannot do for ourselves, what we cannot do for ourselves. A prideful person thinks they can do it themselves. With the right amount of time, right amount of resources, right amount of experience, with the right opportunities, they can make it happen. Pride rejects what grace offers. The more we understand grace, the more the motto of our life should be, I can't, but you can through me. That is not self-abasement. That is not false humility. That is the reality of those who understand grace. I can't, you can through me. Third piece, God wants to live through you what he extends to you. You can see this in the gifts that he's placed in your life, in love, in knowledge, in resources, in the gospel, and you can absolutely see it in grace. Colossians 4, 6, it says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Ephesians 4, 29, it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as it's good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Recipients of grace are to be dispensers of grace. I recognize it's hard. I recognize it's not easy to say the right thing at the right time. 
in fact, let me go beyond it's hard. Let me say it like this. It is impossible to always say the right thing at the right time unless it's God who's living grace through us. I can't, but God, you can through me. So let's personalize it as we close. Where is God disturbing your spirit today and saying, stop trying to do it in your strength. You can't, but I can through you. Where has your faith been shaken? Where has your courage been lost? Where are your tears collecting? And it seems like your joy is draining. Where are you not sure about the next step? Where do you want to throw in the towel and just walk away? Where has the pain almost become unbearable? Where has sin enslaved you and darkness overtaken light? Where do you feel confused and helpless? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul has one word for us. Grace. Grace. I've been a believer now for 28 years. The further I walk with Jesus, the more I understand why some of the most popular lyrics in Christian history have been. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. When you think of what grace is all about, it changes our perspective on the Christian life. So tonight is a reminder of our constant need for grace we're going to finish with communion. Communion is a table of grace. Communion reminds us that for every single person who is a born-again believer, God has done something in us and through us and for us that we could not do for ourselves. We are saved by grace through faith. And we run the race by grace through faith. How we start is how we end. Grace is needed at every step along the way. So I'm going to encourage you, take a few moments, and I want you to spend with God and ask God, where do you want me to recognize my need for grace right now? Where have I continued to push that part away? I want you to take a few moments and ask God, is there any unconfessed sin that is between you and God right now. Remember, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your sin debt has been paid in full. You are 100% forgiven, 100% accepted by Christ. But when sin comes in, here's what it does. It disrupts our intimacy with Christ. It's not that he's not already forgiven. Here's what you do in those moments. You say, God, would you show me where sin is creeping back in? And he will show it to you and in each of those moments, here's what you do. You say, God, I confess that sin. I repent of it before you. And here it is. And I thank you for the forgiveness that I already have in Christ. Thank you for what you already have. Take a few moments and spend with God in prayer. And then we'll come back and go further from there.